diversity has been at the heart of APO since day one, since 2015. A majority of our artists from day one, all our guest artists have been people of color. And that's been something we've been committed to for many, many years from its inception. Because again, I believe all people need to have that voice and all people need to feel seen and represented from a stage. Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies, with in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications. GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop, and I am so excited to be here today with my friend Luke Frazier. Luke is someone I've long admired for his creativity and the innovative strategies that he uses to break down barriers between musicians and audiences. A conductor, music director, and pianist, Luke founded the American Pops Orchestra in 2015 to present diverse and engaging programming that brings communities together through the joy of music. With over 60 million viewers, wow, Luke, that's incredible, APO has been featured in more than 16 national broadcasts on PBS, including my personal favorite, the incredible Wicked in Concert. Luke is committed to creating opportunities for the next generation of music makers and lovers uh, through touring live shows to underserved schools, launching a partnership with Children's National Hospital, which brings free live children's programming to the youth uh, patients under their care. And he's the artistic director of Nouveau Productions and principal pops conductor for the National Philharmonic, appearing regularly in venues across the country, even at Mount Vernon. Perhaps most importantly, Luke believes that conductors are the bridge between the audience and the orchestra. What he programs and how it relates to the listeners is the heartbeat of what keeps orchestral programming alive. Luke, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We are really thrilled to have you. It's truly my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So as you know, here at Chief Influencer, we like to talk about how leaders from different industries and different walks of life have uh, one thing in common. Many of these leaders are exceptional and their ability to influence others to create impact. And we know that you are one of those leaders. You you can't be an impactful leader without influence. And so we want to start by just asking, what is the impact that you want to see in the world? And who do you have to influence to achieve that? Well, I think in my particular area of interest and expertise, it's that we let everyone in the world know that all kinds of music are valuable all kinds of music are important, and that musicians and audience members, there should be no wall between them. So for me, it's that focus on highlighting and honoring all kinds of music from all different cultures and backgrounds in the world, and making sure that everyone feels that they have a place in making and appreciating that music. 
when you think about the most important people to reach, who are you trying to influence? What makes APO different from perhaps another orchestra? Well, I often find that when I talk to those in the field of orchestral music, which is a rather small field compared to many industries in the world, but it's that kind of attitude of preaching to the choir and marketing to the choir and connecting with the choir and kind of doubling down on how do we reach those that are already interested in orchestral music. And for me, I throw all of that out and say, chances are those that are interested in orchestral music will find us. And we have that community. And I love that community, obviously. But I'm much more concerned with those that have been turned off by orchestra. Maybe they think it's stuffy or formal or expensive. And so for me, I want to do everything I can to reach that community. And that's how I've made my entire focus with this group and actually in all the work I do. The energy comes through. I've been to your live performances and you have a knack for bringing um, people together and, and music together with ideas in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think of most of us, but that really works. Can you talk about that approach to what you do and, and how that road has taken you to PBS? Well, you know, I find that so often in concerts, it's predictable, it's formulaic, and usually it relies on one or two big stars to carry a show. It's not really about the experience. It's not about a bigger picture. And for me, from the very beginning, I wanted to focus on diversity of all kinds, gender, race, styles, backgrounds, lived experience, and make sure that all of those kinds of artists are up on stage interpreting and sharing all kinds of music, whether it be popular or classical. So what I love is in my lineup of artists, for instance, for an Aretha Franklin show, there may be some people that are very predictable and who you'd think, but then there are others completely outside of that field. And I love that because what it does is it shows how timeless some music is and how it crosses all boundaries. And more importantly, how we can use that music to cross all boundaries amongst ourselves in and outside of the concert hall. So I think that's something that PBS perhaps picked up on in the beginning and said, this is something very different than the other orchestral programming we have. This is a very different approach. And luckily, they seem to like it. Well, they don't only like it. The audiences <laughs> like it. Your PBS specials have been extremely successful. I mentioned that my favorite, I think, is the Wicked in Concert. <laughs> and you mentioned, excuse me, uh, Wicked in Concert, I would say, is is really one of my favorite PBS specials that you've produced. And you mentioned, you know, the familiar, right? We saw Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth, but we also saw some performers who you wouldn't necessarily think of when you think of Wicked. Can you talk a little bit about that and the success of that program? Well, I'll tell you one piece in particular that I think most audiences were shocked by, but in the end, delighted by. You know, the song Popular from the musical Wicked is one of the most popular songs out there. And to be honest, I've performed it many, many times. I've played it many, many times. And in fact, when I was in school, I had so many singer friends want to sing that song and beg me to play the accompaniment for them. And when I was coming up with the casting for the show alongside Stephen Schwartz, I was thinking about how many pianists out there in the country and in the world have played this piece for some singer? How many have interpreted it at a keyboard, at a grand piano, at an upright, in their church, in their basement, in their school? You know, this piece has actually become so well-known via that and so many kids and young singers wanting to sing it. So I thought, what if we actually make the accompaniment not orchestral and we make it four pianists at four pianos doing a crazy big piano fantasy with Alex Newell um, singing that piece? 
And it just took it to a different place. And I can't help but think that a lot of people watching it thought about the many times they played it or heard someone sing it at a cabaret or a school audition. And it, and again, it's all to that point of breaking down the barriers. So it's not just musical theater fans or not just performers. It's accompanists, it's parents, it's music teachers, it's pastors. It's all these different types of people that have heard and fell in love with this music. So that's how I approached every bit of, or Jennifer Nettles, for instance, singing the music of Wicked. You typically don't think of Wicked as a country show, but I can tell you what, Jennifer Nettles' interpretation in the show was one of my absolute favorites. You created um, ways for people to find that show and that special and make it relevant to them, whether they were a longtime fan or they maybe weren't familiar with it because they were uh, familiar with Jennifer Nettles, for example. Can you talk about that as a strategy? The I think you call it the multiple points of entry, I've heard you say. Exactly. Again, that's been part of my mission from day one with this orchestra. And to be honest, part of my mission with any organization I work with is ensuring we have many points of entry. And again, it's making sure that the performers on stage look like the community we're serving. It's making sure that the ticket prices are reasonable to the community we're serving. It's making sure that every bit of that experience touches on those that have the means and the long-time relationship with orchestras and those that are scared and don't have the means to be a part of most orchestras. And so for me, I do that with casting, I do that with pricing, and I do that with extensive research. That really hits home for me because when I think about our community um, for Chief Influencer, we have leaders and communicators from different industries, and they may not think you know, that the arts is where they're going to get their next big idea. But this concept of many points of entry and not necessarily following the traditional playbook, but coming up with a new approach. I think that that is so powerful. And there's so much that many of us can take from that. And I'd love for you to dive in a little bit more, um, even about how you model your pricing structure at the American Pops Orchestra, very differently from how other typical orchestras have approached that for decades. Well, first off, I think... All too commonly, most people associate going to an orchestral performance as an expensive venture. And of course, there are kind of programs out there, gimmicks, for lack of a better word, of getting people in the doors and, you know, a, a rush ticket or a last minute this or, a, you know, something like that. The other thing that I find troubling is that frequently if community tickets are provided for audience members, usually those are in the back, the far back of the hall, not anywhere near the prime, uh, most close to the action part of the concert experience and also young people coming up with ticket prices. And by the way, not just college students, but people under 35, you know, in, in our world, in our economy, it's tricky. Many people have college loans. Many people have first car payments or mortgages, or, you know, you stack up the list of expenses they have. And when you're thinking about your audience member and you're saying, okay, you're making the choice, whether you're going to stay home and pay your very inexpensive monthly streaming service, or I'm going to ask you to get in public transportation or your car, find your way to where I'm performing, then pay for parking or pay for that transportation, find a meal that's usually inconvenient, and then pay a lot of money to see a show, maybe with a group they've never heard before, and you're wanting them to get to take that risk. That is a lot of hoops to jump through. And so as I work to create pricing, I try to model my pricing on many, again, many points of entry, and also modeling it similar to streaming services. How can we make it a, a comparable experience to something they may get on a streaming service or a one-time fee to go to a major concert with a pop act or, or something else in town, an athletic event, 
I think about all of this pricing when I think about my pricing. The other thing I will tell you is when I started this group, I did extensive research on the market and the area, and I pulled pricing from all sorts of arts organizations, not just orchestras. And I said, are those groups getting the audiences they want? And is their pricing commensurate with their desire to bring in new and diverse audiences? And that's something I think about every time when I'm creating an experience. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about how you compare um, yourself, not just to other orchestras or arts organizations, but to sports and to streaming. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of folks who are probably just looking at their industry and they're not even thinking outside the box. Talk a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also curious where you've gotten inspiration from other organizations or other leaders that have helped you to develop what works for APO. And by the way, APO, I mean, it's among many metrics, extremely successful. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you measure success and tell everybody, <laughs> don't be humble here because uh, <laughs> you're really uh, doing an incredible job uh, as running an organization and reaching audiences. So maybe talk a little bit about that first. And then I'd love to hear more about where you get that inspiration that helps you achieve that success. Well, I think a great thing to think about is if we compare the trajectory of orchestras since the time Netflix came on the scene, and of course there's Hulu and Peacock and every other streaming service, but for sake of expediency, let's focus on Netflix. And think about the days when we used to order DVDs to our house and you would go or you'd go to a, a machine. And that was the big thing. Well, imagine if Netflix executives had, had doubled down and said, we're going to compare ourselves to every other DVD rental service and we're going to become the best DVD rental service and we're going to just hang in there. Well, you know, they, of course, didn't do that. They went to streaming online and then they said, oh, no one's going to want to watch something on their on their telephone or a tablet. Well, surprise, how many of us are watching something on our phone or tablet when we're commuting or traveling or whatever? So all of these things have happened in such a short amount of time. I mean, I remember getting Netflix DVDs when I was in college, which I'm not that ancient. So you think about that amount of time compared to now and how far that service has evolved, which is an entertainment service. And you think about, has the orchestral community adapted as much in that amount of time? And the answer is clearly no. And by the way, would you say, and again, this, the data is there, the audience has not grown nearly commensurate as much as streaming versus orchestral music. And of course, there are many factors that change all of that in marketing dollars and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, even though all those things are not direct comparables, it's still a valuable lesson. It's still teaching me that that the community out there wants are to be much more accessible at a lower price point and much more diverse in every way, quicker access to a broader variety of the art. And so for me, as we looked at success and what success means, I actually, instead of just having a few large orchestral concerts in the beginning of APO, I actually broke the group down into smaller groups for many performances so we could be in the community many, many more times and with many different types of music rather than hold out and say, well, the only kind of orchestral performance is if I have 80 players on the stage, which I firmly disagree with. So there's that. And then, of course, you have to look at um, has our audience grown and has our donor base grown and have we balanced our budget? And to all of those things, yes, we are a full professional orchestra that has managed to balance our budget with no debt in the bank, no line of credit. We also have balanced our budget with no federal or district funding, surprisingly. And not that we don't want that funding, we'd be delighted to receive that funding. But 
we actually have great commitment from our audience and our donors to giving at all types of levels. And so we have a very broad, diverse donor base that grows by the week. And we've managed to keep increasing our budget in a time when many of us listening to this or watching this have seen so many headlines about orchestras cutting their seasons or cutting their staff. And that has never been the case for us in the eight years of existence. Congratulations. I think it's incredible to hear that story, particularly when we all hear this narrative of the arts are struggling so much mm-hmm. to see a model that is so successful and sustainable. Um, I think gives us a lot of hope and not just in the arts and in other industries. You know, I was meeting recently with um, someone in an association, a nonprofit association that's membership based and all their peers are membership based and they're really struggling to grow their membership. But they sort of feel like that's the only model because that's what they and all their peers have always done. And I was really struck when you told me before what your approach to subscription model is, which is, um, you know, the typical like season tickets is what orchestras have done. Can you talk about that? Because I think that that might really jolt some folks, whether they're in the arts or a different industry, to think about their future of financial sustainability. Well, I since day one, I've thought memberships and subscriptions were a waste of time. Um, you know, the I learned this uh, to be quite blunt. And one of the issues, what you have to think about, especially with smaller organizations, you have a limited amount of staff time to focus and work on projects and and create art for that matter. And think about how much time is designed and creating the programs and creating the emails and creating the follow-up for a list of subscribers, which by the way, most orchestras have seen a decrease in subscribers compared to 10 years ago. Um, The other thing I like to think about when when I approach this or talk to folks about this is I happen to be very good friends with the head of one of the television and streaming networks. And we've had many conversations about this. And one of the things I found fascinating is they don't lean into month over month as nearly as much as they originally did. It wasn't that commitment. And they specifically use content in ways that's ever changing to keep that up. Well, imagine if if these major networks with billions of dollars at their disposal are realizing that you constantly have to change your programming and your algorithm in order to keep people engaged over the long term, then what in the world sense does it make to ask young people our age or anyone for that matter to say, I want you to buy tickets a year in advance. And even though something important in your life or something more interesting, quite honestly, comes up in your life to take a chance on, I want you to commit that money and lock down to come to me. And by the way, on the flip side of that, how many folks do I know that have bought a subscription and then felt burned because they, they realized they weren't able to use it. And then they have that bitter taste of, I gave you all my money and what did you give me? So it, there are many reasons why I don't like that model. And to be honest, over the years, most orchestras have relied on that model because it, it, it provided a boost of revenue upfront rather than have to, to think about getting money in the door per each concert. But in my opinion, that's lazy thinking. What I'm hearing is the traditional models really put the the business or the organization at the center and the models of today put your people at the center in your case, one audience. 100%. That's exactly what it is. You know, all too often I hear rhetoric and I see examples of uh, organizations. And by the way, these aren't just arts organizations. These are other businesses too, that act as if they have something that is so prominent and so important that everyone should, you know, the, the horrendous, a different kind of four-letter word, should. 
um, be a part of it and want to come to them and know about them and realize how important they are. Those days are gone. And the only thing you have to look at is you have to look at the role of so many other industries. And you have to look at the role of declining. Another metric I like to compare to and learn from is is the church population across our country. That That is an industry or organization base that's actually faced very similar obstacles as the classical music world. And you look at things that work and things that don't work and very similar mindsets. So having done a lot of church music in my background, I've learned a lot from that community as well. Hmm. A lot of what you're saying, I mean, it totally resonates with me and makes sense, but to many, it might feel very contrarian. And as we think about this role that a chief influencer plays, right? (laughs) Not only do you have to get an audience to connect with um, what you're doing, but you know, you have other stakeholders and funders and venues, and I'm sure all kinds of partners, the musicians themselves, and you have to get them on board with this vision, which is totally different from what others are saying and have been doing, right? How do you do that? What strategies and tactics do you use to get people, to get stakeholders on board with this view. And now you've had so much success. You're on PBS. It's perhaps easier because you can point to that. But when you're getting started in 2015, you weren't on PBS yet. So, I mean, you had to get folks on board with this vision without being able to, to show them um, that level of um, reach. So how did you do it? Well, I think I like to model behavior that is unrelenting, that is constantly committed and dedicated. And I think many people that work with me see that very quickly and know that if they're on my team, I'm going to work to make all boats rise. The other thing that I cannot stress enough, and I talk about all the time, is data answers all the questions. And so when I go to a musician and say, you have two roads you can take right now with your career. Uh, You can take this road, which is the road we've known, and in most conservatories and most schools, this is what we're taught. Um, Or you can take a road that is uncharted, but knowing that you're heading towards the future and that you're heading towards a way of a thoughtful, intentional growth instead of incremental change when it's too late. And perhaps it sounds contrarian in that it's the opposite of what most in my industry say. But I would argue that most in my industry have organizations that are on the rocks financially with declining audiences. So, and again, it's not casting stones, pardon my allusion to rocks. It's more to say my bottom line in all of this, I want every orchestra to thrive. I have no objective of seeing an orchestra fail or any arts organization fail. But what I do have a vested interest in doing is getting the communities around these arts organizations alert and aware enough to realize where their dollars are going. Is it going to making art or is it going to administration and facilities? Are they spending money wisely on what they're presenting? Is it reflective of the community in a sustained approach? Are they doing educational programming that reaches children literally, figuratively, creatively, emotionally where they are instead of setting up barriers to get children in the door? Where is all this happening and why is all this happening? And is the constant concern of an arts organization the community they serve? And note that I keep saying serve. Mm -hmm. We are not just a performance organization industry. We are a service industry. And until we break down those barriers... We're going to continue to run up against these walls and we're going to continue to rely on a few wealthy foundations and individuals to prop up organizations. Imagine most very high organizations or any size organization across our country. If we took away two or three or four of their very top donors, funders, um, would they still be able to survive? And that's a question I like to ask as well is, are we putting our hopes? Because by the way, 
those usually influence the programming that happens on stage and what's happening for their audiences. And so there are just so many issues about focusing on community and, and getting folks to focus on that, which by the way, most audiences, and I think why my audiences have grown is that they love being respected. They love being listened to and they love knowing a transparent financial model where they know most of their dollar when they give it to me is going actually out to making art. And so I love to be a very open book, an honest book. And I find that in any industry, honesty will always get you much further than sugarcoating. Because by the way, the other story is always going to get out and the data will always prove the point if it's not the case. I love that. You know, you talked about serving. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where you're from and the service aspect of the APO, because um, I think it's a pretty incredible story. Well, for me, I grew up in West Virginia, a state I love very dearly and I'm proud to be from. I graduated from West Virginia University for my undergraduate degree in Ohio University in the Appalachian region of Ohio. And I love that region. I love that area. And I think it's a very misunderstood region of our country. It's a very underappreciated region of our country. And quite frankly, I think it's underserviced by the arts in a larger community by our country. And so for me, having this strong passion and conviction, and by the way, parents that aren't in the arts at all, and I was inspired to go into music, in fact, by two factors, my public school teacher and my church musicians. And so for me, this and which, again, by the way, informs so much of what I do now in that it was community that brought me into music. It wasn't an elite one or two people or someone with great means that brought me into the arts. It was my community meeting me where I was and supporting me. And so part of my conviction in the work I do all over the country is making sure that we create as many points of access for children, no matter where they're from, no matter their background, their income, their parents, their grandparents, their family, and so we spend three weeks a year touring live and virtually, primarily focused in Appalachia. And by the way, that's a very large region for listeners and viewers, if you want to check it out and learn more. And we also then go one step further and try to focus on areas with an income of for a family of four of under $35,000. And we take the programming to the schools free of charge. We also will pay for busing if schools need it. We want to, again, take away every barrier there is to students learning about and enjoying music. That's great. That's amazing. Um, in terms of your role, you know, as a conductor, one of the things I just wonder is, as you think about, I mean, you work with A players, right? Some of the best musicians and artists um, from anywhere that come together. But as a conductor, you have to figure out how to bring all of those talents together and have them not clash, even though they have, you know, <laughs> perhaps their own styles. And and yeah. I've 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 seen you in action um, with you know celebrities who come together and are part of those shows. And I just want to ask you, and I don't know if others have asked you this question, but when you're a leader, a business leader, or a nonprofit leader you're often in the similar role where you're having to figure out how do I get all these A players to work together and how do I make us, you know, go toward the common goal rather than against one another. And I just wonder what advice you might be able to share from being in that role of a conductor that other industries and other leaders could learn from. Well, for me, it's, it's really about one thing, a firm conviction and vision for the organization and what's going to be happening and why it's happening, whether that be how we're going to strategize our children's programming or, or how that's going to be, how I'm going to interpret a piece of music. I think most people in this world 
love to rally around someone that has a belief and a firm belief in what they're doing and so much research and study and passion behind that. So it's not just a willy-nilly decision maker. It's a very firm decision maker. And my entire life, as it may be coming across, as I've been that kind of person. Um, I, I do the homework. You know, Cheetah Rivera said once to me in a rehearsal, you need to do the work and bring your own shoes. And so for me, I love that in that we are, I spend every day listening to new music or practicing music or studying scores and simultaneously researching other industries and reading books on topics completely unrelated to music to see how that can influence my art making and my, and my structural leadership. And so I've often found that when I'm watching other organizations or conductors, the time when the problems arise is when the vision is weak or unfocused. And so when that is the case, it's very difficult to get a group together either on stage or in a boardroom. It came through when you were describing um, the, how you articulate the strategy of what you're doing and how it's different and maybe contrarian. You said, you know, this is the future. You can be on this road, which seems safe, but is declining, or you could be on this road, which seems maybe less certain because we don't know exactly where it's going, but we know it's pointed toward the future and really setting that vision where you put the audience at the center, where you put people at the center. Um, that really is powerful. I think to articulate that vision and bring people along. I also just love what you've repeated several times about multiple points of entry, multiple access points, whether that's the young people in the Appalachian region uh, where you're from, or whether that's an audience anywhere that may find out about one of your shows because it's on PBS and that's where they learn about APO. So it's just uh, incredible to hear how all of that comes together. I, I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts or tips or advice when it comes to using technology as a leader. I think that you know many of us, as you, work with people who are spread out all over the place, remote world, hybrid world, Increasingly, we're using technology and social media as a way to expand our influence and get the message out there. You talked a lot about data. And I'm even thinking, how do you make sure you reach audiences with your program on PBS, even though maybe they wouldn't normally pay attention to what's coming up on PBS? So could you talk a little bit about the power of technology um, to drive the impact that you're trying to achieve in the world? Well, you know, one of the things from very early on, we were one of the first orchestras that during the pandemic really converted to full-scale productions that were streamed. And then ultimately that led to PBS noticing us and picking up and not just recycled content, not just an individual player in a room. And by the way, in those 16 television shows we filmed, not a single case of COVID. We took all of that very seriously and we were very careful, but I knew there was another way via technology to keep reaching people. And so even now that people are able to much more easily come out to concerts. We still have a firm commitment to our online and virtual audiences. That's how we grew our children's programming to all 50 states, reached over 100,000 students in one week of our touring just recently. And so we, we really double down on making sure that technology is integral as we move forward. I also am a firm believer in research. And so making sure that we're doing smart marketing, smart advertising, and having my team work collaboratively. And, and so often I hear, well, I'm not a marketer. I don't have a degree in marketing. Well, guess what? We're all marketers. Because every time we go to a dinner, every time we go out with friends for drinks, every time we get in a car with someone, we have that moment to share what we love and why we love it and who we love. 
So maybe it's just you're the marketing person who is one-on-one at a grocery store. Maybe you're the person in your car or in the on the subway. The issue is we're all marketers. And when I turn my staff's mind on that focus and saying, where do you hear news? Who do you believe and trust? And why do you believe and trust them? All too often, when I ask my own staff or those in my own world, it's not the primary musical or arts outlets. It's something completely different. So why in the world would I put my marketing and research focus on those outlets? I'm going to put it where people are going. You know, Again, go with, go with the flow instead of against the flow, and you're going to make a lot better sustainable progress. So, And again, making sure that the marketing is aimed at that community. And then, by the way, making sure that the marketing reflects actually what's happening on stage, which means that what's happening on stage has to change too. So Again, not changing to water anything down, not changing a messaging to water it down. It's just realizing that our world and our community is in a different place. And why not do the research to see where people are going, what they are spending money on, who they do listen to, and really lean into that. And then, by the way, it just starts rippling from there. And, you know, I don't mean to ask you to give away all your secrets, but I know you have really developed some advertising strategies as a way to make sure you reach the right audience when something is on PBS <laughs> and using that data that you alluded to. Can you talk, are you comfortable talking about that a yes, little bit? Of course. Well, all I would say is this. Um, so often when we go into marketing, we think about our email list that we have and we're going to double down and then maybe do a mirror audience of that. Well, I just want everyone to think about who else may be related to your industry, even in a peripheral way, And how can you reach them through the public domain um, and do the research to get to them more quickly, more easily, and be in in front of them more easily, more logistically? And it's not a passive approach. It's an extremely active approach. So I'll give that. So I'm constantly collecting. I'm constantly thinking of who might have a vested interest. Also, if a concert I'm doing has has a particular theme, months in advance, I will spend a lot of time researching contacts in those communities outside of the orchestral world, like non-musical related at all, but maybe related to a component of the show or an actor or singer in the show and develop a very firm communications list and path to reach them in a sustained way leading up to a program. It's a tremendous amount of research and data. And I think all too often, a lot of organizations will hire one person in marketing and it's their job to do it. And if they don't figure it out, like the tickets didn't sell well and what a shame, and maybe we should hire a second person to come in and do that. Instead of realizing that it takes so many people in so many levels in so many different ways. And then the biggest thing I've learned in marketing, which again, perhaps bucks the trend um, of many people, develop your marketing plan. And if it's not working, throw it out and build another one. All too often, I see people double down on a marketing plan that isn't reaching people or, well, we developed this and budgeted for this, but you know, we're just not seeing the revenue or the audience. Well, that should tell you something loud. I can assure you that if If Amazon was doing some ads for you targeting and they weren't getting the money, they would not double down for six more months of targeting that ad. They would completely throw it out and start again. So we've got to be just as nimble and creative. Yeah. And in some ways, when you're smaller, you can be more nimble. Folks get uh, kind of dug in sometimes, but who can can be more nimble than a smaller organization, right? That has Right. Exactly. When you talked about the data and the, you know, it made me think, oh, this is what you're talking about, how you make sure that people who are country music fans find out about a show on PBS that maybe they have never even watched a program on PBS before because they want to pay attention to that artist that you've recruited and incorporated so beautifully into the production. And now what a great win for PBS too, because they have 
um, someone who is exposed to the work that they're doing, right? Well, and again, for me, one of the joys of being on PBS is it is free. And so anyone in our country, no matter your means, can find this, whether it's at home, whether it's in a library, whether it's at school, you have access to this information, to these programs. And all of my shows are free online for a period of time as well, even if you miss them on TV. And that's what I love. It's really bringing more people to the table. And and in my way, I hope that I'm helping support other arts organizations in the country doing important work. One thing I will stress that I haven't said yet is I don't have all the answers. I don't think for a day that I've got it figured out and wow, it's easy and the next day is going to be so much more simple because we have this or because we have that. I'm a person that is constantly striving to do better and reach more people. And so I learn and change my methods every day. For now, this is where I am and how I focus and what I do. But let me tell you, if I see trends moving a different way or feel like I can reach more people a different way, I will unabashedly chuck what I've done and move that direction because I know what music is to me and I know what music can be to so many other people. And I want to get everything out of the way, no matter what I think is the right thing or what someone else thinks is the right thing. It's about being people. What I you know, have heard very loud and clear is you're willing to evolve. It's necessary. You know, the playbook is constantly changing. You gave examples of other industries and others why, you know, they, they don't do that, why it's not successful. And I just loved hearing, look, we went virtual during the pandemic. And because we did that so well, while others weren't even experimenting, we got on the radar of PBS and that virtual programming um, springboarded you into these incredible shows and wicked if i'm not mistaken at wicked in concert one of the the most viewed programs on in pbs history do i have that right that's correct only behind downton abbey which we're very proud of and by the way we've got a lot more coming including one that may even beat those ratings but stay tuned lastly i just want to give you a chance to talk about you made it on the today show recently and i just love (laughs) to for folks to hear about that if you could share the experience well you know again for me Diversity has been at the heart of APO since day one, since 2015. A majority of our artists from day one, all our guest artists, have been people of color. And that's been something we've been committed to for many, many years from its inception. Because again, I believe all people need to have that voice. And all people need to feel seen and represented from a stage. As a result of that, in my work with PBS, we were talking about what kind of programming to do next. And we agreed that wouldn't it be wonderful if we did a celebration of Black Broadway. And then I realized... Of course, why in the world should I be conducting it? This should be conductors of color conducting this show. I am delighted to support the work of outstanding musicians. And so it was a wonderful opportunity to use the platform that APO had developed on PBS to give four guest conductors and an incredible cast of guest artists and our fabulous orchestra and college students. And we even filmed it at Howard University, of course, in HBCU. But shining the light on a community that needs to have the light shined on it. And so as a result of this work, the Today Show caught notice and actually had um, Corbin and Nova actually on the show with members of our group. And we made a Today Show appearance. And what I love about that is it provided the opportunity to shine a broader light on this community that needs more representation, it needs more focus. And by the way, not just a one-off celebration concert, but sustained for a year. And that's what I would challenge my arts colleagues to think about as we think about programming and guest musicians and guest artists make sure that it's a sustained approach and not just one-offs here and there. Because if we, if we stick to that, we're going to build a much more inclusive and, and much more, in my opinion, enriched artistic landscape. Luke, you shared so many strategies for chief influencers, no matter 
what field they're in. We heard um, about the power of that vision toward the future. And that means being contrarian sometimes and bucking the way everybody else does things, but getting folks on board with that future vision. We heard about the power of multiple entry points, multiple access points, um, whether that's through your service, but particularly to meet your audience where they are and to put people at the center. And then that last example, look, you're the conductor, you're the boss, but you knew when you needed to pass the baton, when that was right for the organization and when that was right for the audience. And that led you to um, this incredible new initiative that brought you to the Today Show. So kudos to you. I'm just so excited to see what continues to happen in the future because I know we, we are just seeing the beginning. You're still in the first decade of the APO and we have a lot more to go. Can you tell everybody how they can find you and APO and connect with you? Where should they go if they want to learn more about APO and Luke Frazier? Yes. Well, they can learn about APO at theamericanpops.org or on social at the American Pops. And for me, it's simple, LukeFrazierMusic.com or at LukeFrazierMusic. We keep it simple and straightforward. So check out those links and you'll be able to follow us and see what we're up to. And hopefully you'll join our family. We will follow you. We will keep paying attention to what you're doing. And we're excited to see um, about the, the new things that you can't tell us about quite yet, but that are just over the horizon. So thank you so much for being with us today. At Chief Influencer, thank you for sharing your experiences, successes, the knowledge. I know it's very inspirational for me and so many others to see what you've built and accomplished so far. And we know you're just getting started. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a Chief Influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.